That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Spoiler alert, I am not Bill Press. I'm Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal, longtime panelist, first-time host, sitting in for Bill. For the next month, Bill and his mellifluous radio voice will be a resident scholar at the American Academy in Rome, which is nice work if you can get it. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, March 25th. We've got a wealth of news to cover this week. The confirmation hearings of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the continued fighting and civilian carnage in Ukraine, Donald Trump's batting average in congressional endorsements, and the passing of two titans of Washington. With us to make sense of it all, Scott Wong, senior congressional correspondent for NBC News. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Jeff. Lauren Burke, writer for Black Press USA and The Guardian. Hello, Lauren. How you doing? How are you? Good, thanks. And Zach Cohen, congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. Good morning, Zach. Hey, boss. How's it going? Oh, still boss, huh? Always, Jeff. Always. NATO says Russia has suffered 40,000 casualties. Uh, the Ukrainians have driven the Russians back from several suburbs around Kyiv and retaken territory elsewhere. Ukraine blew up a Russian landing craft in the Black Sea earlier this week. Um, we had been saying uh, only a week or two ago that a stalemate was as good as a win for Ukraine. Uh, but, but Scott, are they actually winning outright? I don't think they're winning outright. They're certainly, they certainly appear to be winning the ground war. And we're now one month into the invasion and Russia has yet to capture Kyiv. We thought that was going to, Kyiv was going to fall in a matter of days. That was at least the intelligence. Uh, you know, they've yet to capture any major Ukrainian city. They certainly have, Russia has certainly laid waste to cities, bombing from above, launching missile strikes from Russia. But the Ukrainians are fighting like hell and have inflicted real damage to the Russians. They've reportedly killed, as you mentioned, thousands of soldiers, Russian soldiers. They've blown up tanks. We've seen the videos of, of them taking down planes and helicopters. And then this, just this week, we saw uh, the Ukrainians reportedly sink a Russian warship. Um, but look, Putin has a number of other tools at his disposal. We can get into some of those. But you know, this is this is going to be a long, protracted war. And, uh, you know, a lot of people thought this was going to be over in a matter of days. Here we are heading into the second month now of the war. Yeah. Uh, in speaking to the NATO leaders yesterday, uh, Zelensky again renewed his call for more weapons, particularly planes and, and air defenses. Like you said, they're winning the ground war. The air war is a little bit more up in the uh, up in the air. Uh, a little bit more un un uncertain. Um, does he does he really need all those extra weapons? I mean, Ukraine now seems to have much of the materiel it needs to fight this war, Lauren, including a, a glut of of anti tank and and light anti aircraft weapons. 
Um, and, and not just in a protracted guerrilla fight, but face to face on on the battlefield. Um, how does this, especially with all the NATO leaders in Europe right now meeting, um, how does this end? What's what's the end game for for Putin and Zelensky here? It's really hard to tell right now. And as Scott just said correctly, I mean, we had expected everybody expected this to be over pretty quickly. And not only is it not only over quickly, but it looks like Ukraine has a chance to really win, and they're already, in my view, winning in the court of public opinion. I mean, when you see hospitals sure. getting bombed, uh, et cetera, and so on, when you see you know anchors walking off of their jobs, we're seeing government officials, AP reported this morning, it was several government officials that have left that quietly disappeared. So uh, I don't know uh, what to say about whether or not more aid to Zelensky is going to make a a, a huge difference. I don't think we're going to be doing any of that. Obviously, everybody remembers that we lost 13 Marines last August in Afghanistan. I can't imagine that Joe Biden would have, you know, our troops on the ground. Uh, there's already grumbling about the money that he's spending, much less troops on the ground. But I, I don't know. I don't know how this ends, but it's gone on a, a heck of a lot longer than I would have ever expected, given uh, the size, obviously, and of the Russian army. And uh, Putin is not is is of course an enemy to so many people in this conversation. It's going to be very hard for him to keep doing this. Uh, it's also scary to listen to some of the nuke talk that has come up, uh, almost as a uh, uh, as something that's a rational thing that could happen. Hopefully, it isn't, but it's scary to hear that. Uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, is actually going to be my next question. Biden is in Europe now for a somewhat impromptu meeting with the allies. This was not a long planned uh, meeting. This came together pretty quickly. He says he wants to make sure that they maintain the sanctions on Russia and increase the pain, quote unquote. Uh, but he also said this. Uh, let's, let's listen to a clip on what he said on chemical weapons. So you've warned about the real threat of chemical weapons being used. Would the U.S. or NATO respond with military action if he did use chemical weapons? We would respond. We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. Zach, I want to get you in here. Uh, is, is this the big risk uh, for, for escalation that Putin feels backed into a corner and, and starts deploying weapons of mass destruction? So Lauren made a good point earlier that certainly, you know, Ukraine is sort of winning in the court of public opinion. And I would say probably in uh, everywhere, certainly except Russia. And and really the question is whether this war is sort of, you know, politically popular in Russia, right? Like Putin is, is obviously has a, a stronger grip on the government than, you know, than your average democratically elected president, given the sort of sort of authoritarian nature of the regime. Um but the farther Putin gets sort of backed into a corner, the really question is like, how does he respond? Does he feel like he has to escalate to save face or is, can he find a way to sort of back out of this? It's the same question that sort of Zelensky faces, right? He was never a particularly popular wartime or excuse me. He was never a particularly popular peacetime president, but obviously is, has been very popular um, both in Ukraine and abroad for how he's managing uh, Ukraine during this invasion. And so what can he sort of take home in any sort of peace talks that are sort of ostensibly happening as the, the war is sort of entering its second month? So it's it's scary. It's why the, the sort of threat of, you know, World War Three and the use of chemical weapons, there are sort of unconfirmed reports of vacuum bombs and cluster bombs already being used, which would be a war crime in Ukraine. And so the escalation of this to sort of weapons of further mass destruction would obviously be very severe. And I, I think it was Senator Lindsey Graham who actually made the point 
that if a nuclear bomb or a chemical bomb is deployed in Ukraine and the radiation sort of seeps into the neighboring NATO countries, would that be a violation? Uh, would that sort of invoke Article 5 of NATO and sort ah. of prompt the, un- the United Defense uh, of NATO countries? So that certainly escalation can take many different forms. And that's why nuclear and chemical weapons is such a serious matter. Yeah. Um, we can spend the whole podcast on this. But lastly, I just wanted to ask, about 3 million refugees are now spreading out across Europe, uh, a lot of them in Poland, but, but going farther west as well. Um, the U.S. pledged to take in about 100,000, which was met with bipartisan objections that the number is too low. Uh, Scott, is there something to this? Is, could or should the U.S. be doing more on the refugee front? Well, I just think that the, the numbers are so staggering, the millions of refugees that are pouring across the borders into Poland and other European countries is so staggering that I think, and and people are seeing the images of the suffering and also senators going over to Poland and speaking directly with some of those refugees. I think uh, the feeling is that, you know, the America should do as much as humanly possible to help these people in this time of crisis. And so, uh, you know, they're looking at, at, especially prioritizing, you know, LGBTQ people, folks with medical needs and journalists and political dissidents who would be targets of of Putin. But just, uh, you know, the general need, the overall need is so enormous that I think uh, the senators returning from Poland and, and from that region, and certainly we'll hear from the president about the humanitarian crisis, uh, you know, they want to do as much as humanly possible at this moment. If I could just jump in here, Congress uh, has already appropriated something like $13.6 billion to help Ukraine. I think about half of that is for humanitarian support. So that's a lot of money. That's a lot of resources. And um, even lawmakers are, are now saying, like, we don't think that's the last time we'll have to spend money to help these refugees, the 2 million plus that have already left the country, the millions that have been displaced within Ukraine. Um and so I, I think you're going to see a lot more on this. The fact that sort of the number for that Ukraine aid escalated throughout talks, it was like $2 billion and exploded pretty quickly, sort of shows the sort of rapidly uh, expanding needs that the country faces and the amount of political will to help. So the other big story this week, we are four days into the confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. A vote is expected in early April, uh, but the contours, or at least a committee vote, uh, but the contours of the politics of this now are all pretty clear. Uh, Lauren, how did the nominee do? Uh, it seemed like the committee was divided into those who wanted to to probe Judge Jackson on the law and those who wanted to increase their odds to become president in, in 2024. Um, how did she do in the face of all this? Well, Jeff, I think she did as best as expected when you're in a position where you can't really sort of unload, you know, you can't really have that sort of fierce back and forth when you're a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, It is very strange to uh, have to witness what we witnessed this week, particularly from five senators, mostly uh, Senators Graham and uh, Josh Hawley, with regard to trying to brand this nominee to child sexual pornography and being deferential uh, to criminals with regard to child sexual pornography. I, I could never have guessed that that would have been the Republican strategy. Uh, these people, of course, had already voted for Katanji Brown Jackson. Judge Jackson was on the Sentencing Commission, which, of course, has to be confirmed by the Senate. 
And Judge Jackson is now a sitting judge on the D.C. Circuit, which, of course, Lindsey Graham voted for her for that. So, of course, what we had to witness was Lindsey Graham contort himself and have to explain why it is that the same judge that he voted for last year is the judge he's probably not going to vote for this year. And in fact, uh, all of this branding campaign, all of this back and forth, all of this gaslighting uh, comes up for the first time and she's been before them a few times. So that was a strange thing to watch, to say the least. I can't imagine in any universe where we would have been witnessing this had that been a white woman sitting at that table. And in fact, we have had a white woman sitting at that table. We had Christine Ford and we had Sandra Day O'Connor. And of course, these are the same Republicans who had to bring in uh, an attorney, Rachel Mitchell, if you remember during the Kavanaugh hearings, because this panel was all male, all white male. (laughs) And and, and that hasn't changed much in four years. They just added Marsha Blackburn. And in a universe of, of nine female Republicans that they could choose from, they still have a, a you know, 90% male panel. So it makes no sense to me. But at any rate, uh, I thought she did okay uh, under all of that. I, I really questioned, frankly, what the Democrats were doing up there, which was really close to absolutely nothing. Until we get to Maisie Hirono uh, bringing up uh, the fact that there was a Trump judge that effectively had the same sentencing record as Jackson, and the second round of Cory Booker, there wasn't much going on in terms of defense from the Democrats uh, for someone who is an avatar, because, you know, in a political sense, Katanji Brown Jackson is an avatar for the number one most loyal voting bloc of the Democratic Party in a midterm year. And they were sitting up there doing what? I, I don't know. So it was interesting to watch, to say the least. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens with the vote. Well, speaking of uh, Democratic pushback, let's listen to Chairman Dick Durbin trying to uh, cut off Ted Cruz as he questioned Jackson. No one case can stand in for a judge's entire record. Okay, but I'm discussing every one of the cases. So if if you're not going to explain it... Senator, would you please let her respond? No, not if she's not going to answer my question. Well, if you're just going to give a speech... You want to filibuster, you're you're welcome to do so, but do it on your own I would at least give you an opportunity to speak, and you should give her an opportunity to respond. You come in with 57 Time has expired. You're not recognized, Senator. Senator You you don't want her to answer that question? You wouldn't allow her any... Mr. Chairman, to answer a question... You can bang it as loud as you want. Well, I can just tell you, at some point, you have to follow the rules. Uh, Scott, was there a particular exchange, uh, that one or others, that, that stood out to you over the, over the couple days of hearings? Well, uh, two, two, two points I would make. Ben Sass, I thought, was brilliant when he told uh, Judge Jackson that he would not put cameras in the Supreme Court courtroom because of precisely what we saw uh, in the Supreme Court hearings. I think he used the word uh, jackassery, if, if I got that correctly. I'm going uh, to interrupt you for a second because we have audio of that, too. It seems like we have a, it's a good time to play it. Let's go ahead and play that one. I think we should recognize that the jackassery we often see around here um, is partly because of people mugging for short-term uh, camera opportunities. Uh, Scott, as you were saying, that might have been the first time Jack Assery was ever used in a Supreme Court uh, hearing we proceeding. We congressional record for that. <laughs> yes, yes. So, I mean, look, this was against the backdrop of the 2024 presidential primaries. We have Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, maybe Lindsey Graham again. Uh, people were looking for their moment to stand out in what's probably, once again, going to be a really crowded field, even if 
uh, former President Trump jumps in. And so people are looking for their moment to stand out. Marsha Blackburn also, who recently appeared at a Lincoln-Reagan dinner in New Hampshire, uh, asked if Judge Jackson could define what a woman is. And so, uh, you know, that was, I think, eclipsed by what Lauren was talking about at the end of of these uh, two, three days of, of hearings, Cory Booker, the Democrat from New Jersey, uh, sort of encapsulated what I think a lot of Americans and, and specifically uh, Black Americans are feeling when he said, you know, nobody in this room, nobody on this Senate dais are, are going to steal my joy. He was speaking from the heart. He talked about the barriers that Judge Jackson was breaking down as the first Black woman who will serve on the Supreme Court. And at the end of the day, she will be sitting up there. The Democrats have the votes. The big question right now is, will any Republicans you know, cross the aisle and join those 50 Democrats in voting yes? Zach, you've specialized in nominations and the confirmation process for, for years now. What does this past week, or does this past week say anything about the confirmation process in general? It's if if it's not broken, maybe it's uh, maybe it's teetering a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly become more partisan um, over time, and I think that's certainly attributable to a couple of things. It's you know, there's sort of been this. There's a really great book um, by uh, Carl Halls of the uh, New York Times. Uh, I think it's called Confirmation Bias. That sort of does a really good job of laying this history out, but it goes back to, you know, the George W. Bush administration, where, you know, people like Chuck Schumer, you know, know, they weren't leader, he wasn't leader at the time, but was really active in sort of um, opposing some of these more ideological nominees that Republicans were putting forward. And so the, we were talking to John Thune, the Senate minority whip a couple days ago, and somebody asked him, like, what does all this mean? And he said, you know, it's, you know, even though Judge Jackson is obviously qualified, you know, sits on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, second highest court in the land, uh, I believe nine years on a trial bench in D.C., worked on the Sensing Commission, a former federal public defender on paper qualified to be on the bench. And yet we'll probably only get like, you know, max three Republican votes for confirmation. And Thune said, look, it comes down to judicial philosophy. Lawmakers really see this these fights as proxies for all of the other issues that are before the court. It's no longer about whether we think that these judges are going to um, rule correctly, or I should say, it's no longer about whether we think these these judges are well qualified to be able to write a, an opinion. It's how they're going to rule and how they're going to view these issues. Um, I, I think it was Amy Coney Barrett, her nomination, her confirmation was the most partisan Supreme Court confirmation since the era of Reconstruction. Um, And so that's, um, it's just been a a long-standing trend in this direction for a couple of decades now. So you think 53-47 tops? Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, Lindsey Graham, as as was mentioned earlier, was one of the three Republicans that voted to confirm her to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, along with Senators Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski who have not said how they feel about this particular nominee, although Murkowski told me in no uncertain terms, you should not look at my past vote on Jackson as an indication of how I might vote on a Supreme Court nomination. So take that for what you will. Collins was a little more circumspect when I asked her about that. Um, I think we always have to keep an eye on Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Sure. Um, but they have not voted against any of Biden's lower court nominees, 56 of which I think have been confirmed so far. Um, and I think it would be pretty remarkable for any member of the president's party to vote against his first Supreme Court nominee. Lauren and Scott, I'm going to put you on the spot here, too. 
Amy Coney Barrett got 52 yes votes. Um, will Judge Jackson get more than that? Yes or no? Um, I would say uh, yes. I'll say yes to that. Scott? I think it's possible. There's a number of, of dark horses. Um, yeah. Let's see what Mitt Romney does. There's, yep. there's a, also some other retiring members like uh, Roy Blunt. And so th- there may be a, a couple other gettable folks in the Republican Party. Lots more to talk about this morning, including Donald Trump's status as a Republican kingmaker and Ginny Thomas's texts, which we will get to after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour, sitting in for Bill, along with Lauren Burke, Scott Wong, and Zach Cohen. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong. They're the backbone of the labor labor unions in this country. Uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, In the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines. And in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the Labor's Union supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan, Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are back on the Bill Press Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour from National Journal, sitting in for Bill, along with Scott Wong from NBC News, Zach Cohen from Bloomberg Government, and Lauren Burke from Black Press USA. Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, last night uh, was reported. She was exchanging text with Mark Meadows on January 6th and, pri- and previously all throughout the, uh, the election controversy. Uh, Bob Woodward and Bob Costa from the Washington Post got the receipts and published them last night. Uh, one quote of hers uh, via text was to Meadows, 
Quote, the majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history, unquote. Uh, Zach Cohen, does this move the needle at all uh, in the in the court of public opinion as far as uh, as far as January 6 goes? We'll have to see. I mean, I, I would say this probably speaks first and foremost to sort of a remarkable fact that the Supreme Court is one of, is despite being one of the uh, despite being one of the most powerful institutions in this country uh doesn't really have a broad set of ethics guidelines and this is notable obviously because jenny thomas the wife of justice clarence thomas um there's really not a lot of enforcement of sort of conflict of interest issues right i think what is notable you know it's it's not just that jenny thomas sort of played into these conspiracy theories and was promoting to the highest levels of government these um these unfounded theories um but that her husband at the time was ruling or reviewing cases that the that President Donald Trump was promoting to the high court, hoping to overturn the election. Um, and there's really no sense that, um, you know, Thomas ever had any desire or felt any need to recuse himself from those deliberations, especially on a, you know, such a narrowly held court. You know, it's at 6-3 of Republican appointed justices to to democratic. And so, um, I think that's sort of where the question lies is that what does this do to the Supreme courts, uh, um, the public opinion of the Supreme court? And I'm not really sure where it goes beyond that for January 6th. I feel like it's, I have a hard time keeping track, frankly, <laughs> of all the different updates, because as time goes on, the sort of drip, 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 yeah. um, it's hard to, hard to see sort of where the, you know, what the, f- the smoking gun is, so to speak. And Lauren, where is her husband? Uh, over the weekend, it was revealed that Clarence Thomas himself was in the hospital for an infection. Uh, then on Monday, he missed a session of the court, uh, which was unexpected. And he still hasn't been heard from, nor do we have any idea when he'll be back. Um, right. The, the, last, the last statement we got from the court was, was on Sunday, five days ago. And the timing really is something because he's he's essentially missing at the at a time when we have these texts from his wife, but we also he's the second black jurist ever to sit on the court, and the Senate is working on confirming the third right now. Right, uh, right. What, what do you make of all this, uh, Jeff? I don't know. Uh, well, of course, what we last know is that he was it is at as far as we know still at Sibley Hospital. But as anyone knows who's covered, you know, politics in Washington, the Supreme Court has always been this mysterious arm's length institution when it comes to any sort of questions about anything, really. <laughs> I mean, you know, we sat here with the Heritage Foundation uh, paying 500000 uh, to the lobbying of uh, on Obamacare. That whole ethical moment went by and nobody said anything, right? And to Zach's point, absolutely right, there are no rules really for the Supreme Court and ethics. Uh, and so we don't know where Clarence Thomas is. We don't know who to question other than maybe members of Congress when something like this sort of happens where we have some ethical problem out there. And, um, you know, although I'm sure the media is staking out Sibley Hospital right now, it's, you know, really difficult when it's any sort of medical issue, obviously, because it has to be kept private in that sense, no matter who it is. But I remember when, you know, William Rehnquist was, you know, uh, was sick and and we got like no information on that. And that was years ago. Not much has changed. So it's a big it's a big mystery as to what's going on right now. Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. We had lots of Donald Trump news this week. Even by Donald Trump's standards, we had a lot of Donald Trump news this week. 
Trump rescinded his endorsement of the underperforming Mo Brooks in Alabama's Senate race. Um, he is now flirting with an endorsement of Congressman Billy Long in the Missouri Senate race. And this follows uh, a number of stories, including from my colleague Josh Krausauer, I might add, uh, pointing out that Trump's track record of endorsements so far isn't so hot and could potentially get worse in the month of May as as primaries like the Georgia governor's primary, uh, North Carolina Senate, Al Alabama Senate, where Brooks is running, all come up and Trump could potentially go 0-3 in those. Uh, Scott, is the is the shine coming off of Trump's star a little bit as a as a political force? It's hard to say. I mean, you could certainly point to Mo Brooks and and make that argument that uh, Trump could not, you know, help Mo Brooks build any momentum. Or you could say Mo Brooks is, is just a really bad uh, Senate candidate. Uh, the candidates, Republican candidates, continue to line up at Mar-a-Lago and seek. Trump's endorsement. So clearly they believe that it, it will help them with, with the Republican base, with a certain segment of voters, but uh, it, it doesn't guarantee anything in, in any of these races, as we've seen with Mo Brooks. And Mo Brooks was one of his chief defenders in the Congress, uh, certainly had been instrumental in, in, in promoting the, uh, the, the effort to overturn the, the election on January 6th. And then uh, when when uh, Mo Brooks lost his momentum, Trump was you know very quickly threw him under the bus and abandoned him. So I think there's a lesson to be learned from a lot of these uh, so-called Trump allies, those who stuck with him through thick and thin. And then once they uh, you know once once they appear to be losing in these races, Trump is is very quick to abandon them. And and the saga of Mo Brooks him, himself is particularly fascinating, as you uh, as you indicated. Here's a guy who actually spoke at the January 6th rally, which turned turned riot, and was among the most vociferous election objectors. But now that's not enough for Trump. Uh, let's let's hear a clip from from Mo Brooks explaining this. President has asked me to rescind the election. We got to take Joe Biden out and put me in now. He still says that. Yes. And I'm going, Mr. President, I'm giving him advice. I'm an attorney. I've read the law. I've read the Constitution. I know it. And I say, Mr. President. You can't do that. It's unconstitutional. Lauren, no, nothing is ever enough for, for, for Trump, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. And <laughs> there's no level of loyalty that's ever going to impress Donald Trump. Um, you know, I do think, though, Scott has a really good point, which is that, you know, we do see these lines up at, at, at Mar-a-Lago. We still see the, the loyalty to Donald Trump. Um, what we don't see is the numbers coming out correctly. I mean, remember that on the national level, you know, Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. And obviously Biden got what, 7 million more than Donald Trump. And yep. frankly, after watching the Virginia race really closely and watching Glenn Youngkin really make an effort to make sure that Donald Trump never appeared in Virginia, it kind of gives me the idea that in these closer states, I mean, certainly in Alabama, it can work for you. One would think it would have worked for Mo Brooks better. But when we start talking about states like Georgia and Virginia, I'm not sure that Trumpism works that well. Particularly <laughs> on the national map, we're talking about the Electoral College and who gets into the White House. I, you know, obviously, state races, statewide races, you got to take uh, you know one state at a time. But, but I thought that the Republicans did a very good job at looking moderate without Trump's involvement at all. They made an effort 
to keep him out of Virginia, and the Republican won. And, uh, you know, Youngkin is governing uh, a lot like sort of DeSantis, you know, so it's, uh, it's a very interesting thing to think about. Zach, I want you to put your uh, political hat on here for a second. Uh, speaking of the, the races this year, the key races this year, uh, primaries and Senate races especially, is there a race or a, or a primary battle that you're looking at in particular as a, as a bellwether in terms of how the, how the fall elections are going to go and how the makeup of the Senate might change? Let's. I'll talk about two of them. First, sure. I think is Pennsylvania, which I think is always super interesting. It's got open Senate primaries on both sides, right, Democrat and Republican. And I would note another example where maybe Trump's endorsement isn't what it once was. Note that he endorsed Sean Parnell in that race, right. who, you know, later on dropped out of the race in the middle of a custody battle over his children. So I think probably speaks more to the Trump and his team's sort of inability to sort of vet candidates before they endorse them. Um, either you know for their personal background or for their political viability, but that's besides the point. The fact that on the Democratic side you've got people like John Fetterman and Connor Lamb really duking it out between the sort of left and the far left, so to speak, of the of the party, um, the Democratic Party, and then in the Republican primary now that Sean Parnell is out, you've got a fascinating primary between uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, the the celebrity physician, and David McCormick, the former hedge fund. CEO, um, it's, I, mean, I think that primary could probably be the most expensive Senate primary in American history, given the amount of personal wealth they both bring to it, given the amount of outside uh, spending that's going to be happening. So I think uh, both those primaries will be competitive. I think the general election will be competitive. Pennsylvania is sort of becoming a bit of a swing state. It's got a Democrat or a Republican senator. Um, and so I think that's the state to be worth watching. And I guess on Trump's um, viability as a as an endorser i think obviously the the key race is the georgia governor's race where you've got uh governor brian kemp seeking re-election faces uh, a challenge from uh, former senator david Perdue, who has trump's backing because trump was not happy with that uh kemp followed the law and certified the election in georgia in biden and democrats favor so those are so depending on the two sort of questions we're watching those are the two states that i would uh, watch Lastly, uh, this past week, we lost two giants of Washington, Madeleine Albright, the first female Secretary of State, and Don Young, the Dean of the House and the longest serving Republican member of Congress in history. Um, who's going to be better remembered in, in history? I'm just going to throw that out as a toss up. Probably Madeleine Albright. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to exactly. go with that. I mean, uh, uh, Congressman Young is a very acquired taste, very gruff, very old school, <laughs> and uh, very confrontational, actually. So uh, right up, right up to the Bowie knife that he would carry around, <laughs> and occasionally, and occasionally brandish. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Just ask John Boehner, and uh, quite a story there. So I, you know, I, I suspect that Madeleine Albright, but certainly, you know, two two very different individuals. Great conversation today with Lauren Burke, Scott Wong, Zach Cohen. Now it's Bill's favorite time of the show, uh, your favorite story of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great read. Uh, Lauren, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Uh, so my favorite little story of the week was that Dr. William Harvey, who is the president of Hampton University in Virginia, has invited 100 students from Ukraine to study at the university and is getting a little bit of pushback. Uh, Dr. Harvey has been the president of Hampton for 44 years, <laughs> since 1978. 
Wow. He often talks about retiring, but it never actually seems to happen at any rate. He wants to have some students in from Ukraine to help them out. And he's getting some pushback because the students are saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're struggling financially here and you're bringing in people from, you know, other countries. What are we doing? So it's sort of an interesting discussion that I think is a little bit of a microcosm of what we may hear in Congress as the months go forward and we and we decide on on aid to Ukraine. Scott, favorite story of the week? Well, just a point of personal privilege, my own UCLA Bruins will be playing tonight up in Philly against uh, North Carolina. Between those two teams, they have 17 national championships between them. And, and you know, already three of the number one seeds, Gonzaga, Arizona, and Baylor, have all gone down. So we're feeling pretty good about our chances to get back into the Final Four. The Wong household will be watching the Bruins and rooting them on. But... At the same time, I think everyone has been captivated by this Cinderella team, uh, St. Peter's out of Jersey City, New Jersey, the Peacocks, uh, who have made this uh, miraculous run. And, and they, they've only got, I think, a few thousand students on their campus. Uh, very exciting. I'm hoping for at some point uh, down the road, a, a UCLA uh, St. Peter's matchup. So go Bruins and go Peacocks. My, my favorite stat about that was uh, one of the most searched things in Google uh, earlier this week was, where is St. Peter's? I had to look that up, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was one of them. Uh, Zach, favorite story of the week? My favorite story of the week um, was from Greg Jaffe at the Washington Post um, about Afghanistan's last finance minister, Khalid Payenda, um, his new day job driving for Uber in the Washington DC area, um, which I thought was a fascinating statement, not just on sort of the rapid fall of Afghanistan and sort of, and the, the Taliban's takeover sort of making a lot of, you know, the, the last, uh, Afghan government's, you know, set um, rather unhelpful in the current Washington milieu. You'd think that somebody with Payenda's background, um, would be catnip for, um, K Street and people looking to make inroads with the Afghan government, but not so much when it's the Taliban. And on a personal note, I, th- I think it's a good reminder that, you know, whether it's your Uber driver or the, the person behind the, the fast food counter or a person you walk down the street, you don't really know what their backstory is and worth keeping an open mind, being generous, offering grace. Um, because, yeah, you, you don't know what their backstory is and you don't know where they're going in life. That's right. My favorite story of the week goes back to the former president, none other than Donald Trump. He announced yesterday that he is suing Hillary Clinton for the Russia hoax. And why this is my favorite story of the week is that um, Trump may not seem to realize that when you when you sue someone in a, in a civil case, you open up discovery. Uh, not only for uh, your side, but for the defense as well. Uh, this is a lesson he maybe did not learn when he sued one of the uh, one of his biographers uh, and tried to take him to court for uh, uh, allegedly understating his wealth. Uh, and this is when we got the uh, some of the legendary Trumpisms in his in his depositions. When he, Trump was questioned under oath, he said that his uh, his net worth uh, would would vary depending on how he felt that day. Uh, so 
anytime you get uh, you get discovery by the defense and you get the chance of of getting a deposition from Trump and getting him on the stand, um, look out because the, the, the news cycle will, uh, will, will benefit from it. Uh, so I'm going to leave it there. Uh, that's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Lauren Burke of Black Press USA, Scott Wong of NBC News, Zach Cohen of Bloomberg. I'm Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal, sitting in for Bill, who is spending the next month as a resident fellow at the American Academy in Rome. But he'll have an interview next Tuesday. Uh, Until then, thanks for listening to the Bill Press Reporters Roundtable. Have a good weekend.